Our scripture this evening will be from Proverbs chapter 24. Proverbs chapter 24, and I'll read up to verse 21. Proverbs 24 and verse 1. Do not be envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them, for their minds devise violence, and their lips talk of trouble. By wisdom a house is built, and by understanding it is established. And by knowledge the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. A wise man is strong, and a man of knowledge increases power. For by wise guidance you will wage war, and in abundance of counselors there is victory. Wisdom is too exalted for a fool. He does not open his mouth in the gate. One who plans to do evil, men will call a schemer. The devising of folly is sin, and the scoffer is an abomination to men. If you are slack in the day of distress, your strength is limited. Deliver those who are being taken away to death, and those who are staggering to slaughter, oh, hold them back. If you say, see, we did not know this, does he not consider it who weighs the hearts? And does, not he, and does he not know it who keeps your soul? And will he not render to man according to his work? My son, eat honey, for it is good. Yes, the honey from the comb is sweet to your taste. Know that wisdom is thus for your soul. If you find it, then there will be a future, and your hope will not be cut off. Do not lie in wait, O wicked man, against the dwelling of the righteous. Do not destroy his resting place. For a righteous man falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in time of calamity. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. Do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles, or the Lord will see it and be displeased. And turn his anger away from him. Do not fret because of evildoers or be envious of the wicked. For there will be no future for the evil man. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. Stop there. Congregation, this evening I'd like to speak with you about building our house. Is the title that I've put over this sermon and again, I have a, a quote, quite a lengthy quote, don't I, in the opening on that outline there that I would like to read with you that I think helps kind of put this sermon in its proper context. So again, I would like to read this with you, these three paragraphs that I've put. This is from a man named Henry Skugel. He was an old writer, probably 200 years ago, and he wrote a book called The Life of God in the Soul of Man. He wanted to write a book about true religion. And his, uh, his teaching in this book is that true religion is just that, the life of God in the soul of man. But before he begins in the book, he gives us very interesting three paragraphs here about how many, many people often understand true religion to be. And so let's read this. Some think true religion is says Henry Skugel. Some think it is in the understanding. 
in Orthodox notions and opinions. And all the account they can give of their religion is that they are of this or the other persuasion and have joined themselves to one of those many sects wherein Christendom is most unhappily divided. So some people think of religion in terms of the understanding. Others place it in a constant course of external duties and a model of performances. If they live peaceably with their neighbors, keep a temperate diet, observe the returns of worship, frequenting the church or their closet, that would be their prayer closet, and sometimes extend their hands to the relief of the poor, they think they have sufficiently acquitted themselves. So there's the second opinion of what true religion is. And then the last one. Others again put all religion in the affections, in rapturous heats and ecstatic devotion. And all they aim at is to pray with passion and think of heaven with pleasure and to be affected with those kind and melting expressions wherewith they court their Savior till they persuade themselves that they are mightily in love with him and from thence assume a great confidence of their salvation, which they esteem the chief of Christian graces. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Because Henry Skugel there is saying that some people think of true religion as something primarily in the mind. Others as something more in the emotions, in the, the heart, the affections, and others in the feet, that Christianity or true religion is a matter of practice. I remember when I was, uh, I was speaking uh, with a man when I was in college one time, and he made the same point, but he did it with a picture. And he drew a stick figure. And he said, some people think of religion like this. And he drew a stick figure, and the, man had a, the, the stick figure had a huge head, and then just a little body and little legs. And that was the person who saw religion as something in the head, a matter of doctrine and theology and teaching. And then the next person he drew had a, a very large torso, you might say, right? A very large heart, but a very small head and very small feet, right? The person who thought a true religion was very much in the emotions and the affections and the passions. And then, and then uh, you can imagine the third figure was a, a stick figure with very large feet and just a small heart and a small head. So he's making the same point. But I suspect, congregation, that as we read these three things, that probably some of you were like, well, yeah, that's, that, that's certainly true. That, I mean, and then when we went to the second paragraph, yeah, there's a, that's, that's part of true religion, right? Am I, am I right? And in the third paragraph, you probably again said, well, there's a great deal of truth there too. And so none of these three are wrong, are they? Or if they are wrong, it's, it's that... True religion is a balance of these three things, isn't it? True religion requires understanding. It requires doctrine. It requires teaching. We have to be grounded. But true religion also requires a practice, right? James says if you're just a hearer of the word, but not a doer of the word, your religion is worthless. And then we know that religion has emotion. It has a passion, right? Uh, And we can't even really articulate that in words. The, The feelings that we feel, the tears that flow when our hearts are deeply stirred with love for our Savior and with a, with a sight of the greatness of, of salvation and the grace of God and His love and mercy towards us sinners. So there's those three things. You, you can think of them almost as a, as a threefold cord. But actually, congregation, I believe our text is going to take us into a different picture. Not so much a threefold cord, but a house. A house. 
And that's why I think it's important tonight that we think about the order of these things. Right? Now, if we use the picture of a chord, it's just three chords that make up a chord, right? The three strands that make up one chord, and that's fine. But what you miss in that picture is that there is an order to these things, right? Children, you know this, right? If, you, if, if a builder went and just went out and built a house, you know, right, right out on the front yard there, right? And just started building walls and put on a roof, but he never laid a foundation. There's no concrete footings on, for the house to rest on. What's going to happen to that house? It's not going to last, is it? It's going to go over. In fact, we have a picture of that in the Bible. Remember the, uh, the foolish man? He built his house on the sand. And uh, insofar as we can tell from the story, the house went up quick. It was a beautiful house. It was a nice house. In all respects, it looked perfectly functional. But the first storm that came swept it away. So there's an order to these things. And our text tonight is going to teach us that order. What is the order to these things. We know that religion requires something in our minds. It requires emotions and passions. I shouldn't even say it requires it. It, it will produce emotions and passions, right? And, and there's practice. There's, we need to walk in a way of godliness. But our text tonight is going to speak about an order. And especially in terms of that first one. And of course, I, I, I chose this specifically tonight because I want to think in the, in the, in the series of sermons that we begin tonight about the Heidelberg Catechism and why we would do that. Why would we spend Sunday evening studying a, the, the truths and the doctrines that are contained in the Catechism? You know that there's a good number of people that actually leave Reformed churches for this very reason. They will join, they will join churches like, like the, uh, the Orthodox, the Eastern Orthodox churches. They will join churches like Roman Catholic churches. Right? Why? Why? Well, for various reasons, but one of the reasons is because you don't have such an emphasis on theology and doctrine in those churches. There isn't such an emphasis on thinking correctly and having sound doctrine at our basis. Right? I don't know if you've ever gone into a Catholic or an Orthodox church. We went into one on East Paris in Grand Rapids. It was a beautiful Eastern Orthodox church and congregation. The minute you step through the door, you're just blown away by what you see. Uh, you, you, you should do it sometime. You should look once. And, and you, you would see it. You know, you see all these icons and these images around the perimeter of the church. The church was built in a circle. And it had a beautiful dome to it. And it, it kind of took your breath away. You walked in and you're like, wow, right? And of course, that, I was just looking at an empty church. But if you went there during a service, right, you would see candles burning all over. Some people would be holding candles. Some people would be bowing down, right? Some people would be... Uh, would be, would be uh, praying or, or worshiping in a certain direction, right? Uh, people a lot of times do their own thing in these churches. There's not like one worship service that everybody's doing the same thing. But my point is, is that there's, there's now the emphasis is much more on the feeling of it, right? It's an experience that you have. You go into church and you, you feel close to God. You feel a sense of transcendence. Now, I want to be very careful tonight. Because I'm not speaking against the feeling of, of emotion and the feeling of transcendence in the presence of God. But I think our text is going to teach us something tonight about the proper order of these things. And that at the foundation of the house, there needs to be true doctrine, right thinking, theology, an understanding of the word of God and what it means. 
And on that foundation, congregation, we build the house of our practice, our character, who we are as people and how we walk with God from day to day in a life of holiness. And then, of course, most impressive of all to us and most memorable to us are those emotions, right? The, the, the experiences that we do have in the house of God. Those times, well, we're going we're gonna to talk about that, when, when we, as it were, taste the goodness of God to us. But there's an order here. Let's look at that in this text. In the outline there, I've given you these five points. And the first one is building and establishing. For that, I'd like you to look, congregation, at Proverbs 24 and verse 3. Verse 3. You can see that text there. Proverbs 24 and verse 3. By wisdom, a house is built. Now that's good, right? We want a house built wisely and well. But now the next line takes it a little farther. And by understanding, it is established. Now congregation, as I just uh, said, it's, it's wonderful to have a house. But if that house is not established, if it's not grounded on something firm and steadfast and rock solid, well, then you're going to have what I just saw when I went to Alberta in November. I went to Alberta in November, and as I drove to the church where I was going to preach, I passed by another church. And I noted it because it was quite a strikingly beautiful church. And as I, as I went into the church and I met with the elders, and I said, what's the church I passed on the way in here? It was kind of an interesting looking building. Oh, they said, that's such and such a church. It actually was a, a reformed church. But they're having a lot of problems there. One of the corners of the church is sinking down into the ground, literally. It's literally, and like over a foot already, it's sunk into the ground. And they're, and they're doing all sorts of things by way of construction to try to lift that portion of the church up again. Now, should we talk about churches failing, right? Well, here's a, a church building that is literally going into the ground and the, and the congregation is racking their minds for ways to shore up the, the building so it doesn't fall over. Well, that's, that's what happens when you have a house that's built, even if it's built by wisdom, but it's not established. And so, congregation, you know that this text then is not giving us instructions on how to build a house, right? It's talking about our life and our, and our own character and our walk of faith. That at the bottom of our experience of what it means to be a Christian, there needs to be understanding. By understanding the house of our faith is established and it's built on a foundation. And if that foundation is, is not sound, then your house, then, well, like that building, is going to begin to sink and it's going to fail, it's going to crumble and possibly even like the house built on the sand be washed away entirely. And so congregation, that's why you can't have a religion that is built on, on, on emotion and the experiences that we have of God's mercy and grace to us. Those things are wonderful. And there's no true religion without it. But it's not the foundation. Our text teaches us that by understanding the house is established. I move to the second point, beautification. Making a house beautiful. Again, one thing to have a house built. It's one thing to even have a house built on a firm, solid foundation. But congregation, if the house is drab, it's not decorated, it has no has no color, it has no design, no, nothing of beauty in it, it's purely just functional. Well, then we come to verse 4. 
and by knowledge the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. By what? By knowledge. So you see again, of those three things that I gave you at the beginning of the sermon, the mind, the heart, and the legs, right? The scripture teaches us that it's by knowledge that our rooms are filled with all these glorious and beautiful things, right? And you've been to houses, right, where they have beautiful tapestries on the wall, pictures, the, the, the walls can be beautifully painted. Uh, my wife and I visited some time ago in, in uh, North Carolina, the Biltmore Mansion that the Vanderbilts used to live in, right? And you walk in there and, and you just... It's, it's breathtaking. Even their, uh, even their dining room table was a work of art, right? And it's incredible. Well, now again, this, this text is not telling us how to decorate our house, right? It's, it's, we're not to understand this literally. It's a metaphor. And it's telling us that the rooms of our house, our own person, the, the religion that we practice before God, how do we beautify that house? By knowledge. The text is very clear. By knowledge, we put treasures, beautiful treasures, on the walls of our house. That's what knowledge does. Now, congregation, when I, when I read this, it triggered something in my mind that I had learned when I went to education school. I remember this, and maybe some of the teachers in our, in our congregation will remember this as well. When we talked about the, the art of learning, how a person learns, the, the uh, instructors told us that one of the key ways to learn is to have knowledge. And that actually, the, the more knowledge you have, the more you're able to gain knowledge. A person that has a completely blank slate, right, learns very, very, very difficult. It's, it's, it's very difficult for him. But when you learn more things, it's as if there's more hooks in your brain that more knowledge can be hung on, Right? So much of teaching is connecting the unknown to something that you already know. I imagine, you know, I've done that a number of times already in, in this sermon, right? Trying to appeal to things that you, you know already. And so the more that we know, the more we're able to learn. And now think about that in terms of preaching. Think about that in terms of the sermons that are given here week after week. Because unfortunately, there are people who understand that preaching or they, they, they experience preaching as very boring. It doesn't interest them. In congregation, could it be that by increasing our knowledge of the Christian faith through a study of Scripture, through a study of the Catechism, we would put more hooks in our minds so that as I preach, that knowledge would find a place in your mind that it could attach there and it would become interesting. And suddenly the preaching of the word of God would become like a treasure that you bring into your house and you would see it to be a treasure. And we can be very practical about this, right? If I, if I was delivering to you a lecture right now on, on uh, well, any subject, I say, say nuclear physics or something, right? And I was using all these terms and such, right? You, you, I would quickly become bored. You would likely become bored unless, of course... You have some expertise in that science. Then you would hear and you would understand and it would be interesting to you. But I suspect for most of us that a lecture like that would be extraordinarily boring. 
But congregation, as we fill our minds with knowledge and we listen to the preaching of the Word of God, now that preaching becomes like a treasure to us that we're bringing into our house. And so it's interesting to me that the Proverbs teach us, and by knowledge, the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. That's what theology becomes. When we know a little bit about theology, when we know a lot about theology, then the preaching of the Word of God meets us, and we understand it, and we love it. And it becomes to us as a treasure, and as a precious, pleasant riches. Now that may be, maybe that should be a little convicting to us, congregation. If we find preaching a little tedious and, and a little, uh, uh, we, we, could, we could take it or leave it. Maybe under the blessing of God, we should ask that our minds would be stocked with more knowledge of the Bible and of theology so that we could hear with interest and the preaching of God would become a treasure to us. So beautification. Our house is not only built, not only established, but even decorated by knowledge of God. Strength is the third point there. Strength, verses 5 and 6. A wise man is strong. Now again, you notice how the one line starts and then the next line carries it forward. A wise man is strong. And that's good. We, we, we're happy about that. But notice the next line. A man of knowledge increases power. Now, I think even literally, uh, when we think about strength, right, it's one thing to be a strong person, to be a strong man, to be a strong woman, physically strong. But we want to be growing in our strength, right? Even, even as a, an athlete or something, right, you want to be growing in your strength. Well, again, this text is not teaching us how to uh, build our physical bodies, right? This is talking about our house. It's talking about our life of faith and our walk with God. A wise man is strong. But a man of knowledge increases power. So when we are strong and we want to grow stronger, how do we do that? We do that by knowledge. We do that by growing in our understanding of God and of His Word and of theology. But continue in, in verse 6 there because we're talking here about strength and the, 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 uh, why this is useful. And in verse 6 it says, For by wise guidance you will wage war. And in abundance of counselors, there is victory. And again, congregation, you know that this is not teaching us how to wage war, right? Well, in a sense, you could say it's teaching us how to wage war, but it's teaching us in life how when we are a person of knowledge, when we are a wise man and a wise woman, we have strength. And we're ready for times of crisis. When do we need counselors? When we're in a time of crisis. Who will counsel if no one has knowledge. And I think probably uh, many of us can, can think of people who've, who've had their lives wrecked by bad counsel. They received bad counsel and their lives were destroyed by it. So congregation, you can see that this kind of strength is needed for times of crisis individually for ourselves. Because you know there will come times in your life when you will face the storms of life when you will face questions, when you will face issues that will arise in your life which seem impossible, which are so difficult. But a man of knowledge has resources, doesn't he? That he can call upon to help him to resolve those issues 
and to move forward. And not only can he do that for himself, but he can do that for, for others. And in abundance of counselors, there is victory. There's so many texts in the New Testament, right? In 1 Peter 3, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Congregation, I can remember in my own experience in college, when I came to a time in my life when I actually began to doubt the very existence of God. I really did. And it was extraordinarily painful and difficult because I believed in God, as it were, but I didn't know why. I, I, I didn't know necessarily the reasons for it. And I, of course, was a very studious young man and I read all the, probably the, all the wrong books. I read all the atheist books. And, 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 but my lack of knowledge meant that I had no answer for the claims that the atheist scholars were making. And therefore I led myself into untold misery and trouble because I couldn't answer those arguments. I was not the man of knowledge. And frankly, not very many young men have that kind of knowledge to do that kind of thing. But if I had been a wise person, I would have recognized right, that there were others who had answered those arguments. But I didn't think about that at the time. And therefore I led myself into all kinds of trouble. A man of knowledge is prepared for those times of crisis. And then specifically for the elders in the church, Titus 1, Titus uh, 1 verse 9, elders, hold fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Now that's specifically for the elders in the church, but congregation, what a blessing it would be if all of our men had that ability and all of our women. I read kind of a humorous story a while back about a man who went to visit uh, the, the uh, father of Jonathan Edwards. You remember Jonathan Edwards, the great Puritan theologian in New England. And somebody went to visit Jonathan Edwards' father, who was also a minister. And uh, he had a question, a very difficult question. Well, Timothy Edwards, that was his name, was not home at the time. And his wife said, come on in. I expect him back any minute. Well, they sat down, and he began to discuss it with Timothy Edwards' wife. And pretty soon his question was answered and he went on his way. He never even spoke with Timothy Edwards. Didn't need to because his wife had answered the question for him. She was a woman of knowledge and she was able to answer the question that the man had in his time of crisis. What a blessing it is to have people like that in our churches. So strength for times of crisis. I hasten on then to usefulness. Proverbs 24 and verse 7 usefulness. Proverbs 24, verse 7, wisdom is too exalted for a fool. He does not open his mouth in the gate. Now you know, congregation, that in those days, the, the business of the city was always conducted at the city gate. Well, the fool who does not have the knowledge, he doesn't open his mouth in the gate because he has nothing to say that's helpful or that's intelligent. Another, another text in Proverbs makes the same point, but kind of the opposite way. It says, The tongue of the wise makes knowledge appealing, but the mouth of a fool belches out foolishness. In other words, some, some people with no knowledge have all kinds of things to say, but it's folly, it's foolishness, it's not helpful. And it ends up making more trouble than, 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 than good. 
usefulness, who will open their mouth in the gate? That's why congregation is so necessary in our life, that we pursue this knowledge of God and His Word. And the Catechism, of course, assists us in that pursuit. But who will open their mouth in this church congregation? Who will open their mouth in the council meetings, in the meetings of the elders? Who will open their mouth in the women's Bible studies, in the Sunday school classes, the catechism classes? Who will open their mouth in the narthex when you have a conversation privately between one-on-one? We want somebody that will open their mouth and that will give forth wisdom, not folly. And that's why it behooves us then to make this study and to, and to pursue this zealously and to make it a priority in our life. My fifth point is honey. And this is what we saw already in Psalm 119. But we see it in our text here in verses 13 and 14. Proverbs 24, verse 13 and 14. My son, eat honey, for it is good. Yes, the honey from the comb is sweet to your taste. Now, if you stop right there, you might think that he's talking about, you know, find, find some honey. It's, it's so tasty. But then he, verse 14, makes it clear, right? Know that wisdom is thus. Wisdom is that honey for your soul. If you find it, there will be a future and your hope will not be cut off. Dear friends, this is, this is a, a something that's difficult to put into words, isn't it? In one sense, I have to say, if you've experienced this, you know of what I'm speaking. But there are those times when you're studying the Word of God. There are times when you're under the preaching of the Word of God. And God gives you to taste. Again, it's, it's hard to put that in words, isn't it? But those are moments when the tears begin to flow. And when God seems to come very close to us, it's as if He speaks to us more powerfully and more directly. And again, I, I'm sure I could ask you to come forward and you could tell us of these times and moments. Many of us are not happy to speak about them, right? We keep them very close to us. But there are those times those, those unexplained times when God draws very near to us. I read recently a story of a man. He was a pastor. He was in the Netherlands. And he came from a very difficult visit. And he was riding his bike along the dike. And his life, his heart was in a turmoil. And he looked out at the North Sea there as he rode on that dike. And he saw the tumultuous waves going. And, and that was a picture of his soul. And as he was riding his bike along that dike, there came to his mind. He has ever turned my sorrow into gladness on the morrow. It's not even a scripture text. It's actually from one of the, the, one of the songs they used to sing. He has ever turned my sorrow into gladness on the morrow. And that fell into his heart with such power that it brought immediate peace to him and brought such a gladness and such a joy in his soul that he never could explain. That no one can explain. It's honey. It's like the drippings of honey from the honeycomb. And that's what the, the author here is saying. He's not telling us about eating honey, right? That sometimes there's a sweetness in the things of the Word of God that cause our hearts to melt. And, 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 and those are unforgettable times in the life of God's people. Unforgettable times. And I think, congregation, if you know the Lord, that you know what I'm speaking about. You know what I'm talking about. And perhaps you don't even speak about it to anyone else. But you know those times and places in the house of God 
or in your own private prayer room, perhaps, where God spoke in a powerful way. And you never forget that. You never forget that. My son, eat honey, for it is good. Well, congregation, building, establishing, beautifying, strength, usefulness, honey, how do we put this into practice then in our lives? And only one point of application tonight. How do we put that into practice? Well, on an individual level, right, we can talk about studying theology, having a time in our life when we open the Word of God, when we study it. You know, we don't just charge through it. We try to understand it. And those are all good things. But especially on a church level, at the, at the level of a church, what can we as a church do to put into practice what Scripture has taught us this evening? And that is to put at the foundation of Covenant United Reformed Church a rock-solid foundation that won't waver, that won't shake, that'll stay firm even when the storms of life come. Well, at the Synod of Dort, 1618, 1619, this is what they said. In their church order, Article 68, they wrote, Ministers shall on each Lord's Day, ordinarily in the afternoon sermon our evening sermon, briefly explain the sum of Christian doctrine contained in the Catechism, which at present is accepted in the Netherlands churches in such a way that it may be completed annually, following the division of the Catechism itself made for that purpose. You know that the Catechism is, uh, to that purpose, divided into 52 Lord's Days, right? So it can be completed in a full year. So the Synod of Dort, and actually this had been the practice of the churches even before the Synod of Dort, but now the Synod of Dort, you might say, put it into writing, that Reformed ministers should make a habit of taking the Heidelberg Catechism as the topic of the sermon in the evening. And they had other instructions too. For instance, they, they made it very clear that the uh, Catechism should be explained simply so that the young uh, people in the church could understand it. And that it was not an opportunity for ministers to flaunt their knowledge of theology and to bring high-sounding terms uh, to, the, to the congregation. But it was to be aimed even at the young people in the church. They specifically said that in the Synod of Dort. And that it was to be something that it was to be done in the afternoon sermons. Ordinarily, in other words, you weren't bound to do it every Sunday evening, but ordinarily, in the regular course of things, the catechism was to be explained. Now, in the United Reformed Churches of which we are a member, we have a similar article, and I put that for you in the outline. This is from the church order of the United Reformed Churches in Article 40, where you find the same point. At one of the services each Lord's Day, the minister shall ordinarily preach the word as summarized in the three forms of unity, with special attention given to the Heidelberg Catechism by treating its Lord's Days in sequence. So there you have it. Our United Reformed Churches are also then saying, this is the teaching of the Word of God. That we need to have doctrine and theology in our Christian life, at the foundation, at the basis of our life. How can we do that as a church? How can we do that as a denomination? Well, we're going to ask the ministers to preach from the Catechism, and actually, in, in the Article 40 here has given, notice that it says, in the three forms of unity. So they've even broadened it to include the Canons of Dort and the Belgic Confession. But notice that special attention is to be given to the Catechism. And again, putting into practice what we learned from the Word of God this evening, that theology is at the base 
of our whole Christian life and walk with God. Now, that, it's not the only thing in our Christian life and walk with God. Congregation, we need to understand that. Right? That's not the only thing. But it is at the foundation of our house. And we build our house foolishly if we don't put that at the foundation. Now, some people have objected that we should not preach the catechism. We should preach the Word of God. Have you felt that as well, perhaps? Why would we preach the catechism? After all, the catechism, too, is a human document. And it is a human document. We're not denying that tonight. But congregation, would you look again at what the church order says? I wonder if we could read that again and read it very carefully this time. Notice what it says. At one of the services each Lord's Day, the minister shall ordinarily preach the word. Do you see that? Our denomination is not asking the minister to preach the catechism. He's asking, the denomination is asking the ministers to preach the word of God as summarized in the three forms of unity and so on. In other words, the topic may come from the catechism, but the teaching and the preaching is based on the word of God. So it is not fair, it's not accurate to say that in, the, in our denomination we preach the catechism. That's really not a good expression. And it's not what's in our church order either. We preach the word of God as contained in the confession. Now, you know, one of my friends back in Grand Rapids was the reverend, well, he would never say reverend, but uh, Pastor Al Martin. He was a pastor of the Trinity Baptist Church in New Jersey. And Pastor Al Martin, was uh, he had an expression that he would use because he would often use the Westminster Shorter Catechism in his preaching. And he said, some of you may object that I'm preaching the catechism and Pastor Martin responded by saying, I'm not preaching the catechism. He said, I'm bringing the word of God as food in the dishes of the catechism. So in other words, in the dish, in the bowl, on the plate, is the word of God. But it's on the dish, or the plate. I'm serving it up to you in the catechism. That's a beautiful way to put it, isn't it? Of course, we don't feed you the dish, the plate, What's on the plate is what you eat. But it comes to us in the form, right? In the form of the catechism. And by the way, congregation, if I can revert back to Titus 1 verse 9, which I quoted earlier, notice the wording here. In Titus 1 9, elders hold fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching. You see that same kind of... Uh, emphasis there, right, in the apostle. He says, here's the word, hold fast the word, and, and hold fast that faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, with the teaching, the body of truths that we hold to and believe as Christians. So congregation, that is what I aim to do in these sermons. As we take up the Heidelberg Catechism, is to give you the word of God in the form of the catechism, in accordance with the teaching. Well, I think the goal then, as, we, as we've heard it this evening, is to build a house, congregation. Is to build a house of our walk with God and our life of faith. And to put at the foundation, at the footing of that house, the teaching that is given us in the Word of God as summarized for us in the Catechism. Let's keep that in our mind, congregation. That that is the goal that we have. And the goal that we have, congregation, is that as we lay that foundation of that house, 
that the walls will go up, that the roof will go up, that the home will be decorated and beautified with all sorts of precious and pleasant riches so that our life as a Christian will not just be theology, but that there will be practice. There will be a walk with God. There will be a life of holiness. But also, congregation, that there will be that honey. And it's my earnest prayer to God, congregation, I hope it's your prayer, that there will also be those times that we can taste together the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that it will be as honey to us. When we have such an experience, congregation, we taste something of the beauty of the word of God. And that's unforgettable. I pray that for you. I pray that for me, even in preaching. I remember a minister one time who said, Lord, may, and he was, he was praying for himself, may I taste something of the matters that I handle. A preacher needs that too. To taste something of the truths that he handles. But I pray that for you, congregation. I pray that the Spirit of God would draw near to you in these series of sermons and would speak to you and would give you a taste of the honey of the Word of God. I pray that for young and old, may God grant it. Shall we pray? Almighty and merciful God, as we stand at the threshold of uh, preaching through the truths contained in the Catechism, Lord, we do earnestly pray that you would come down and be in our midst, that you would be our teacher, that you would be our God and our guide, that you would lead us through these truths. Lord, that the preacher would fall into the background and that you would give your people a taste of the beauty, of the glory of the Word of God. That this would become an experiential exercise for us. Not merely an exercise in theology, even though we spend so much time on that here. But Lord, that it would be also an exercise in practice. That we would learn how to live to your glory. And that it would become also an exercise in tasting the honey, the sweetness that is in your Word. Lord, please bless us this evening. Return us safely to our homes. And as we go about our work this week, Lord, may we do it with a sense of your goodness and grace upon us. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would bless the congregation and all the needs. We do lift up, O oh Lord, at this time, Harold Vleetstra and the uh, emergency surgery that he had to undergo in Florida. Lord, will you please bless him, give him recovery, and that in due time he may return to us again as, your, as you will it. Lord, we commit ourselves into your hands. And pray for your blessing to be upon us as we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Congregation.